Am I on? Hey! Well, Pastor Rob promised that I would be ready in case his baby was born. And now you know why I'm here. I want to dedicate this sermon to a special newborn baby, Tabitha Gomez, everybody. Look at This is a part of our True North family. Isn't she adorable? Look at those cheeks. All, uh, all honesty, and I hope I was honest, some of the leaders and I were talking that we were really worried about Tabitha's future because we see Carissa, and Carissa's like this adorable daughter. Well, Carissa, I'm proud to say you have met your match of adorableness because, wow, look how cute she is. Well, just to let you know, when did this happen? It happened on Wednesday night. And after, actually, Pastor Rod did his sermon recap, he went in the back where I was standing, and we were just, just started to talk, and all of a sudden, Kristen just walks up and is like, it's time. <laughs> And have you ever seen Zootopia? I, I, I reacted like that, that cheetah at the front desk at the police, o- the police office. I was like, oh! <gasps> Pastor Rod went and grabbed his go bag, took Christian to the hospital. We were texting, and we're hoping it wasn't like, oh, a false alarm. And thankfully, I got, you got a picture. And I was like, yes, it's real, it happened. But I bet when they arrived at the hospital, when Kristen, when Tabitha was still inside the belly, that I bet Pastor Rod had high expectations of how the hospital would treat not only his wife, but his baby daughter. Not because that Pastor Rod has unreasonable expectations, but it's also the expectations that the hospital has set on their staff. When Christian's probably hooked up to all the monitors and machines, the nurse didn't go, hey, uh, Christian, this is what you do. You put the needle in, and then you just do all this stuff. You push this button, you're good to go. No, they put it in for her. They do it very gently and well and comforting. Now, and the doctor, it wasn't like the doctor didn't poke his head in when, you know, Christian's in labor and about to deliver Tabitha. And he's like, all right, Pastor Rod, you stand like this and you're just ready to go, okay? You got this. I'm going to take a break real quick. No, he expects the doctor to be there to take care of his child. And so sometimes when we do our Christian walk, we have our own expectations that we think, oh, I'm okay. I'm good enough. I'm obedient enough. And we never really consider God's expectations for us. And when we think we're good enough that we're doing okay in our our walk with Christ, or for some of you not walking with Christ, do you think you're okay right now? That can be very dangerous. Because we can misunderstand what good truly means. We try to define good, but God already defined good. He did it in the beginning in Genesis 1. He says what is good, and we decide to disobey instead. So when we're looking at God's commands, like the Ten Commandments about lying, stealing, murder, envy, we ought to compare ourselves not to our expectations, but to God's expectations instead. And once we do that, we'll see first of how we fail, but also how Christ has fulfilled those on our behalf. And then in turn, we ought to become, we're going to talk about being a neighbor, we ought to be the sacrificial neighbor that we were created to be. We got to be the obedient son and daughter that we were created to be instead of us being rebels. But we're going to turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. So if you want to open your Bibles there to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, we're going to meet someone who thinks they're really good. He's looking at his expectations of how to fulfill God's law, and he's about to be worked real bad right now. And it's going to be embarrassing. So let's see this embarrassing moment together. Turn to, again, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer 
like Rob Kelly, stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He being Jesus, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, right here, we already see that the lawyer already sees that he doesn't measure up. Why? He tried to justify himself. He knew the right answer, but yet he's trying to justify himself. He was trying to compare to his expectations rather to God's. And again, a lawyer, I always pick on Dr. Rob Kelly Esquire. That's his real uh, official name, by the way. So one of our leaders, if he, if he raises his hand, if he's bold enough, he'll raise his hand. But he is Dr. Rob Kelly Esquire. He's not going to raise his hand, by the way, if you're looking around. His name's Rob Kelly. But he is a man of the law. He's a lawyer. He studies the law of the United States. Like this man studies the law, but the law of God. So they're kind of similar, but yet different. I hope you see that. Rob doesn't make sure that we're obeying God's law, but as a leader, he wants us to be sure we're obedient to God's commands as followers of Christ. But he's one that makes sure that we're following the laws of the United States, where this man wants people to follow the laws of God and especially the extra laws that he added. And again, he put him to the test. So if you look again in verse 25, it says, teacher, what shall I do to, e to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. That's a great question. All of you should be asking this. All of us know that we're going to die. We all just went through the pain of losing Kobe Bryant. We all know that we are not invincible, but yet sometimes we forget to ask this deep question. And sometimes as Christians, we don't think of this question enough or reflect on this question enough. How do I e inherit eternal life? But we know this is not a genuine question because of the phrase that comes before, because he wanted to put Jesus to the test. He's like trying to play chess with Jesus and say, hey, go, Jesus, here's checkmate. And Jesus is like, wait, hold up. This isn't even checkmate. This is just a little check, but let's talk to you now. Verse 26, what is written? And so Jesus responds, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And this is, this is a kind of a sidebar. This is an evangelism tactic right here. This is a great way when you're talking to non-believers or people who are professing to be faith, this is a great way to understand who you're talking to. You're welcome. That's a great idea, apparently. But you're trying to understand who you're talking to. Jesus is, tr well, Jesus is trying to help us understand because God knows the heart of this man. This is why he asked the question. But he's trying to show us how, what, we, what this man is thinking. How do you read the law? How do you inherit eternal life? So he thinks he knows the right answer. And what, the right, what is the right answer? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This guy would have gotten all the Bible bucks in Awana and Cubbies. He would have made you know, bankrupt compass with Bible bucks. Because he knew the right answers. Like many of you know the answer. How are you saved? Repentance and faith. But what Jesus is about to show him is that you don't understand this commandment. And my question to us is that do we understand what it means to repent? Do we understand what it means to place our faith in Christ? We might know it, bless you. But do we understand it? Because Jesus, knowing that he doesn't understand it, well, kind of understands it, he says to the lawyer, you answer correctly, now do this and live. And the lawyer goes, wait, hold up. I know I don't fulfill this all the way. So now he's feeling backed up in a corner and trying to justify himself. He said, wait, wait, who is my neighbor? Because he knows deep down he doesn't fulfill 
one of those commands. He knows he doesn't love his neighbor. As Jesus is about to break down in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that's the point of the Good Samaritan, by the way. This is the point to show that this man fails, to show us that we fail at loving our neighbor. Because he asks, who is my neighbor? He should know the answer. But he knows that if, and he knows he's, because he's the man of the law, in Leviticus 26, that if you disobey, if you don't obey all of these commands, if you just disobey one, I will bring peril. I will bring my wrath upon Israel, including every Israelite. And so he knew, like, oh, wait, hold up. I don't fulfill this. And so I got to justify my sin. Like, we constantly justify ourselves when we stumble into sin. But the lawyer thought his obedience to the law made himself good. But with the law, the purpose of the law is to point out you do not fulfill it. And you need someone to fulfill it for you. But he needs to admit defeat, just like you and I. We need to admit that we have failed at this command. So that is our first point. Write it down. Admit you fail at being a perfect neighbor. Admit you fail at being a perfect neighbor. Because we're not looking at our expectations anymore. We're looking at his expectations now. And it's hard when we are judged by other people's expectations. So I want to ask you, who knows what the most, and if you were here Saturday, don't answer this, who knows what the most exclusive university in the world, and sorry Cameron Richards, I'm not going to say College of the Clowns. I don't, I don't care it's Clown College, Cameron. What is the most exclusive university in the world? It's more exclusive than any Ivy League. Harvard has a 4% acceptance rate. I think Stanford has roughly the same. This university has a 1.5% acceptance rate. Well, if you knew that it was the Birla Institute of Technology in India, you would be correct. A little bizarre, right? But why is this so exclusive? Because they don't care what you put on your resume. They don't care how many AP classes you take. They don't care that you were the club president of True North or the club president of like 10 other clubs. They don't care that you started a charity. They don't care how many people, how nice you were to people. They don't care how many captain, how many sports you were captain of. They don't care if you're the lead role of how many plays. They don't care. They don't care about your SAT down here. Guess what they care about? Their own test. And if all of us decided to apply this, say, wait, here's your resume, I'm ripping it up. I don't care. Here's our test. They have designed their own SAT for every applicant. They have to take it because they're going to judge by their expectations, not ours. We can't hide behind our built-up resumes. And by the way, if you're doing those things, those are good. I did those because we, you know, we're trying to get scholarships. We're trying to stand out. But Berla, the point is they don't care. They say, are you good enough? Here's our standard. That's what God, we do to God. Hey, God, I'm good enough. Here's my resume. I help these people. I don't hate people. I'm kind. I'm compassionate. I might not believe in you, but I, I think I'm good. No, we have to admit that we have failed. We have to admit that it's God's expectations. We have to judge ourselves. But what are God's expectations? What are his standards? Well, here's one. He said, hey, do not murder. We have to go through the commands. He said, hey, don't murder. Okay, well, I haven't killed anyone. I hope you haven't killed anyone. If you have, turn yourself in. But Jesus said, he's like, hey, the volume is down here. It needs to be up here. Your bar is down here. My bar is really up here. When I say do not murder, it means also, like he says in Matthew 5, if you have anger in your heart towards somebody, you will be liable to judgment for the same crime as murder. Same thing with lust. Well, I haven't committed sex. I haven't slept with anybody. Well, Jesus says, if you have lust in your heart towards anybody, you will be liable for the same judgment as an adulterer. 
And his standards go further. It's not like, oh, you can, you know, it's not like one of our tests, like, all right, you get 86% on the test, you pass. No. In James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So you're telling me, Evan, that if I lie once and that's it, that I'll be damned, damned to hell? Well, yes, Pastor Otto broke this down. If you lie to your sibling, nothing's going to really happen. But if you lie under oath against the President of the United States or the U.S. government of the United States, you'll be put in prison. Now, we sinned against the infinite God, but here's my question to you. Do you know anyone who's only sinned once? Who's only lied once? I don't, and neither do you. Stop hiding behind them. Stop hiding behind them, and instead, examine ourselves. Examine yourself according to his standard. And have we lied? Yes, we have lied. Have we committed a murder in our heart? Yeah, we have. Have we lusted? Yes. We don't need all 10 commandments to realize, okay, we fail, Evan, I get it. We have failed at being a perfect neighbor because if we were a perfect neighbor, we wouldn't murder in our heart. We wouldn't lust in our heart. We wouldn't lie to people. Instead, we'd be honest and looking at people of image bear, like image bears of God like they are. So we examine ourselves. We then have to further admit that we have failed. And one way to do that, to see, all right, where have I failed? Use the Bible. Hebrews 4 talks about the word of God is, is like a sword that it, it, it pierces through, that separates flesh and your soul. Something that's so knitly tied together, it can separate that. And it says even further that it discerns our thoughts and our, and our, and our intentions of our heart. And nothing is hidden from our sight. It's sight, excuse me. Nothing is hidden from its sight. And that we are naked and exposed, not just to the word of God, but, but, to, but to our king. It's like being on Instagram Live for 24-7. Everyone can watch you. And not only that, your thoughts are hooked up also to live Instagram. So you have live Instagram, and it's a little other the screen of all your thoughts. We're going to be judged for everything. Well, Evan, that, that doesn't seem fair. Unfortunately, it is fair. And guess what? We'll be judged according to our actions, to what we have done and not done. Revelation 20 says the books will be opened. If we are not of Christ, the books will be opened and will be examined. So the person who's in Papua New Guinea, who's never heard the gospel, and you and I in this room, if we do not have Christ, will stand before God, he'll read out what we have done, and we'll say, yes, I am guilty. Yes, in Romans chapter 2, it clarifies that the person in Papua New Guinea who has never heard the gospel has a different standard that they'll be judged against. In creation and their conscience, there will be their own condemnation against them. But for us, we have the whole word of God that will stand against us. So in this heavy part of this sermon, stop making excuses. We have to own our sin. We have to stop hiding behind people in Papua New Guinea and people who have never heard the gospel. You have heard it. We need to respond. Stop hiding behind like, oh, it's natural. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. We're in high school. We're immature. No, stop hiding behind it. Realize the apostles are probably your age or younger potentially. Think about that. Stop hiding behind that. Stop hiding, like, oh, I'm struggling, struggling with this sin. We can struggle with sins, yes, but own what the sin is. If you have lied, you are a liar. If you have, have committed anger in your heart, you are a murderer. If we have lust in our heart, we are adulterers. Let that sink in. Let us admit that we have failed. Let's also admit that we can't deliver us because we don't trust in ourselves to save us. Who do we trust in? Jesus. 
We trust in Jesus. We trust in God's character to save us. We trust in God's action to save us. We trust in his promises to save us. So when he promises in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, when we own our sin, when we confess our sin, and confessing is more than just admitting that we've done it. it confessing is admitting that we have done it and also admitting that we can't, for, uh, we can't earn our forgiveness, that we need a Savior. It's like, I cannot save myself. If we confess our sins, what is God going to do? What is his promise? What does he promise? He's faithful and just to forgive us. And not only that, he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the promise of God, that we cannot save ourselves, but he can. But we have to first, the Lord, this is what he was missing. He thought he obeyed the law enough. He thought he could save himself. Instead, he needed to realize he needed the Savior. We'll continue in verse 30, where Jesus replies with the Good Samaritan parable. And the parable, is the, the point is this, to show what is a good neighbor? What does a good neighbor look like? And it is to show the Lord that he has failed. We got there. We admit that we failed. Okay. But I want you also to look in this lens. See it in this, both lens. One, that, okay, this is the standard I have failed. But two, see that Christ is the Samaritan. He has succeeded he has succeeded in fulfilling this. So please read along with me in verse 30. Jesus replies to the lawyer, and remember the question is, who is my neighbor? So he says, a man was going down from, Jer uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now this was about a 17-mile trek through a very sketchy area. They would have known, okay, this is where, where, uh, where robbers come and mug people. So it's like you deciding to go at night to walk down Skid Row by yourself. Bad things could happen, okay? Don't be, don't be shocked. So he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when you see this, and don't be too familiar with the story, a priest. So when they see the priest, oh, this is a person that should help. A priest intercedes before, um, on, God, on, on the people's behalf before God. So think of like a pastor. If you see one of the pastors here at Compass or myself, and you see someone that's beat up and mugged, and I just walk on by, you'd be shocked, Right? Like, Evan, I thought better of you. What's wrong? So the audience would have been shocked that he passed on the other side at the end of verse 31. So, like, so likewise, a Levite. Now, who is a Levite? A Levite was a descendant of the son of Levi. Well, who is Levi? Not our leader but sitting back there. No, the son of Levi, was, he was the son of Jacob. He was one of the 12 sons who eventually formed the 12 tribes of Israel. And God ordered, uh, set it up that the Levites would be the ones that help the priests be inter to intercede on the Israelites' behalf before God. So here's a little clarification further. All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Or in other words, all pastors are Christians, but not all Christians are pastors. You follow? Nod your head? Good. So who are the Levites? All right, they set up the tabernacle and they set it down. They help, help the priests serve. So think of them as like the facilities at this church. You see Levite, see facilities. Facilities sets these rooms up, you know, we just did it. They set the rooms up. They tear it down. They make sure this place is running so that the pastors can do their job well. So you see a facility guy walking by. What, what happens? You, say, you expect Cam Richards and Matt Daniel. They're like, oh, wait, they're good guys. They're on facilities. They will have compassion on the guy. No. The Levite passed on the other side as well. And you would be shocked. I would be shocked if the facility guy passed by. But a Samaritan. Who is a Samaritan? Well, Samaritans are from Samaria. But what's Samaria? 
This is a very long history lesson I really want to get into, but here is the cliff notes. All right, so in the first century where Jesus is alive, who is in charge of Israel and who occupies Israel? The Romans. So the Romans broke down the province like this. So the, it got to this because Israel used to be a united country before 1948. He had King Saul, then King David, and King Solomon. You had the united kingdom. But King Solomon's son sinned gravely, and he broke up the kingdom. The kingdom split from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. So yeah, the southern kingdom was called Judah, and the northern kingdom was called Israel. And what happened then, we can read this in 2 Kings, is that the ancient peoples of Assyria, one of the best and one of the greatest military peoples of all time, came and invaded Israel. And unfortunately for Israel, because of their disobedience, God allowed the Assyrians to conquer Israel. And as a result, the intermarried, by either by the Israelites' choice or not their choice, a little bit of a mix of both, the intermarried with the Samaritans. But the Samaritans didn't worship Yahweh. They were pagans. They weren't nice people. If you read about the Assyrians, they were pretty evil they would bury people up to their neck and drive a stake through their tongue. So this is the people we're talking about. So you're intermarrying intermar- people who are part of like ISIS or the KKK. So the, Jew- the uh, Jews in the south who were not conquered by the Assyrians, later by the Babylonian- Babylonians, but that's not important right now, they would have seen the people of Israel as unclean, half-breeds. And the, that area of Israel became known as the Samar- Samaria and the Samaritans. And the Samaritans had their own place of worship. They didn't go down to Jerusalem. So when you see the Samaritan, the audience would have thought ISIS, a descendant of ISIS, or a descendant of the KKK. This person's unclean. But the Samaritan, what does this Samaritan do? He journeyed, and he came where he, the half-dead man, was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He had compassion. To further the point... The Israelites and the Samaritans hated each other. They hated each other so much. A Jew in Judea would not want to go through Samaria to go to Galilee. In Galilee, they're still clean Jews in their viewpoint. They would actually go all the way around into Gentile territory just to avoid Samaria. So imagine someone in San Diego hates us in Orange County. We killed all the orange trees. Why did you do this? I enjoyed that drive. So you know what? Instead of going up the five to LA like a normal person, I'm going to go all the way around. I'm going to go behind Saddleback Mountain just to avoid you Orange County people. I hate you that much. So this is the plot twist. So when the Samaritan has compassion, this is a plot twist because they are supposed to hate each other. Instead, the Samaritan had compassion. And he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Oil, not the essential oils that your parents buy. Rather, it's oils like medicine. And not wine, not like the wine that we drink, but rather the wine was used to sanitize the wound, like the rubbing alcohol that we hate when when our moms put it on us because it stings so bad on our cuts. He sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took care of him for a whole day, the whole night, stayed up all night taking care of this person. He's being generous. He took out two denarii. A denarii is a, is a full day's wage. So imagine if you work, imagine giving your two full t- paychecks to ca- take care of a person, not a, just a stranger, but probably a person that you hate. And you give it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. See how generous the Samaritan was? But see how, if this is the standard of being a good neighbor, how we fail at it. The lawyer has to see that he fails at being the good Samaritan. But do you also see how Christ is the good Samaritan? 
How he came down, how he being the outcast, like the Samaritan being the outcast, came to save his enemy. And even though the enemy probably mocked him, ridiculed him, spat on him, maybe beat him up, said, get out of here. The Samaritan said, I, I, I don't care right now. I'm going to take care of you. That's Christ. Even though while we were enemies, took care of us. So I bet when this man, when he wakes up, when the, when the Jew, again, by the way, he's probably a Jew because Samaritans don't go to Jerusalem. Only Jews hang out there. So a Jew, when he wakes up and says, wait, a Samaritan helps me out? I got, wait, my enemy, the guy who I spit on? I mean, a mean, mean comment on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, that guy, he helps me. You know what? I want to entrust my life to him. Even though my, that my priest and the Levite and my people abandoned me, my enemy didn't. I'll gladly give my life to him. And I don't care what people say. You're hanging out with the Samaritan? Wait, where were you? I don't care about you anymore. I want, to, I want to entrust my life to the man who saved me. How much more should we joyfully entrust our lives to Christ? Who was the good neighbor? So put that, as, put that down to point number two. Joyfully entrust your life to Christ, your greatest neighbor. Some true Northers have joined the military in the past, and maybe some of you are considering joining the military. And you know when you join the military, you're going to be yelled at and mocked and ridiculed. But imagine joining the military during one of the greatest wars, and you think, okay, we're, we're all in this together. Yes, the sergeant's going to yell at me, or the drill instructor, depending what branch you're in, will yell at me, make fun of me. But at least my comrades, my brother, brother in arms will you know, unite. You're like, all right, we're in this together. This man who's being awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, when he first sh showed up, even though it's all smiles and rainbows right now, when he showed up, he was mocked by his brothers in arms. When he showed up at the boot camp, they mocked him. They spit on him. They would wake him up in the middle of the night and kick him, beat him up, try to make him quit. Why? Because he's a pacifist. And like he said, he was as the world was content and tearing itself apart, he just thought, why not just put it back together? Desmond Doss was the pacifist. And he rather said, I don't want to pick up a weapon. Rather, I would just rather heal people. And when he went into the Battle of Okinawa in, in the Pacific Theater, and this battle was, by the way, it, it was the most brutal battle in the Pacific Theater. We lost 50,000 casualties. So imagine all the high schoolers, all of you in South Orange County, all of you are either injured or dead. In the Battle of Okinawa, we had 12,000 dead. So imagine uh, Tesoro, San Juan, and Aliso. Your entire school population is now dead and more. That's how deadly this battle is. And they didn't like him, his fellow compatriots, because they knew the battle they were getting into. They know how deadly it was. They want to make sure he had their back. And he said, I do have your back. Will you trust me? And they didn't. And so and as part of, in the Battle of Okinawa, they had to climb up this cliff. And that were, that's where the battlefield was. That's where the Japanese were hunkering down. And when they engaged the Japanese, the Japanese were slaughtering them. And some of the men were trapped, so they ordered a retreat. But Desmond knew that people were trapped, so instead he stayed behind. And for the next 12 hours, he went crawling through blood and guts and dirt, risking his life, being shot at for 12 hours, trying to save one man after another, just praying to God, just give me one more, just give me one more, just give me one more. And as a result, he saved 75 men in those 12 hours. And he had to lower them down that cliff, by the way, by himself. And afterwards, the men who mocked him, spit on him, hated him, entrusted their lives to him. Because when they woke up in the, uh, the first aid station, they said, wait, who, Desmond saved me? I beat him up. I'm the one that spit on him. 
I'm the one that ridiculed him. I'm the one that held him as my friend punched him. He saved me? As a result, they entrusted their lives to him. So, but again, True North, we have someone that's greater than Desmond Doss. We didn't have someone that risked his life for us. He, we have a person who gave his life for us. If that doesn't send shivers down your spine, it's because maybe you don't understand the gravity of the situation. I don't sin. I'm not that bad. Yes, I lie. I may have a little lie one day, but I don't kill people. I don't lust that much. I don't I, don't, I haven't looked at porn in years. I don't have sex with that many people. I just tell one little lie a day. Is that bad? Well, let's give a little illustration, shall we? What's worse, a DUI and hitting someone or a parking ticket in Laguna Beach? What's what? worse? A DUI, of course. If you get a DUI and you hit someone, you're not only in prison, you're probably in prison for life. If you get a ticket in Laguna Beach, you have 20 bucks to pay. But let's say, just like a white lie, you just get a parking ticket once a day. Let's do that for a year. You would owe the government, this is before interest in you know, getting the car out of towing and of the, of, the, of the pound, excuse me. You would owe the government $7,300. I don't think any of you have that money. Again, this is you have to pay. Your parents can't cover it. You have to pay it. But let's take it further. Let's say you all live to the ripe age of your mid-80s or late 80s. So for the next 70 years, you get a parking ticket every single day in Laguna Beach because you just, you know, I'm not that bad. You would owe the government half a million dollars. You'll never be able to pay that off. So all those little sins that you commit are just adding and adding up. You have to understand it. In order to joyfully entrust you, you have to understand the debt that was paid to you, or the, the, the debt that was paid on your behalf. While we were his enemy, Christ died for us he became the curse that we are. He paid our debt. How? He did so by his wounds. For the time you crack open your laptop and look at some porn, or to go to the inappropriate, or to even the post inappropriate thing on Instagram, Snapchat, or TikTok, Christ was lashed for that. Every time you slandered someone, anytime you lie to your parents, or, lie, or disobey your parents, talk back to your parents, you're whipping Christ in the back, that's why he came down. Every time you're angry at someone, you're angry at your teacher, angry at your boss, angry at the driver next to you, you drive the nail further into Jesus's hands because that's what he did. That is why he is the good neighbor because he was in anguish to cover our sins. The anger you have, the, manip the manipulation you're trying to hide, the secret sins, Christ suffered for that. As Shai Lin says in his song, The Cross, in three hours, Christ suffered more than any sinner will, and will ever in hell. Remember, he doesn't fit just physical abuse. It was God's wrath as well. Now my question to you, True North, why won't you joyfully entrust your life? Why not submit? I don't need to talk about what, how you can submit. You know what you need to do. You need to let go of your morals. You need to let go of your life. You need to let go of the dreams you have. You need to let go of the control of your actions, your goals, the relationships. They need to be dictated by God. Why not submit to him? He is the one on the cross. We should have been there. Why not entrust our lives to him? Why not joyfully do so? Why not live it out? Is it a boyfriend? Is it a girlfriend? Is it some fun you want to have? The dirty jokes you want to say? Because you think it's unjust the way God set it up? No. Humbly submit to a person who loves you. Worship him. Center your life around him. 
He deserves it. Center your life. Center your time around him. He deserves it. Where are you spending your time? Who dictates your time right now? Is it God or is it yourself? Are you easily skipping out on, on gathering here in True North or as the church? Are you skipping out on small groups easily or skipping out on your campus clubs easily? Are you skipping out on your Bible time, your prayer time, your fellowship time, your serving? Are you skipping out so flippantly? Who's dictating your time? Is it God or is it you? What about our relationships? Are our relationships centered around Christ? Who are we wanting to date and who are we dating? Do they follow God? Or are we so stubborn that we would rather be unequally yoked? Who are our friends? Do we just disregard that bad morals, or sorry, bad company corrupts good morals? Do you want to just disregard that? Or do we want to admit that, no, gathering together to encourage one another, to build one another up, we can only do so because Christ did so on the cross. He showed what it is to be a good neighbor. He filled it, fulfilled it on our behalf. Why not entrust? Why not repent? Why not put our faith that he died in our place? Why not? Why not center our decisions, on, our, especially on our future? Do we consult God to where you want to go to college, seniors? What career you're thinking about? Do we ever ask God, God, what do you want? Not all of you have to be pastors. Not all of you will be pastors. Jesus, in James, the Bible clearly says not all of you should be pastors. That's fine. We need Christian doctors. We need Christian nurses. We need Christian financial advisors. We need Christian astronauts. We need Christian people in the military. We need Christian people all over this world. But are the decisions that you're making for your life right now, the classes you might take, the friends you will be with, are those decisions dictated by God or by us? We need to center our lives around him. And if we joyfully entrust our lives to Christ, we'll naturally start to obey him. Because if you ever do partners, and I encourage you, all of you, especially seniors, try to get, do partners with your leader. You still have time. I think you seniors have 15 weeks left. If you're in the public school, I think 15 weeks left in your public schools, you can do it. There's only 10 chapters of partners. If you don't do it with me, you might finish on time. If you do it with me, it might take you three years. I just want to make sure you understand, okay? But if you, under, if you do partners, you'll understand this formula. Repentance plus faith equals what? Salvation. Plus what's good works. There's a place for good works. Good works doesn't save us, but good works shows that we are saved. Go back to verse 36 in Luke chapter, Luke chapter 10. Jesus shares the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he said, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, the outcast, the person you hate, who proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Who proved it? The Samaritan. Who proved to be your good neighbor? Jesus. So we need to prove that we are good neighbors to others. So the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy, the Samaritan. And this is where his heart is truly revealed he hates the Samaritan so much, he says he refuses to say Samaritan. He says the one. Because he hates them so much that he disobeys God's command to love his neighbor. And he knows it. And Jesus just drops the mic on him and says, and he, Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This was a mic drop. The guy just got schooled. He got worked. He's trying to do one-on-one basketball with Jesus and Jesus just drained it on him over and over and over. And the guy's broken. We never hear about this guy anymore. It's sad. 
And the point of the Good Samaritan, the point of this command is to show that you cannot do it. You need it. But now we know that, True North, because we admitted that we cannot do it. And now we're entrusting our lives to him, right? Now we can take the principle that people always make the main point. The principle of this command is, yes, we need to go and do likewise. We need to strive to do so. Jesus fulfilled the role of the good neighbor. Now we need to be like him. So let's strive to do so. So point number three, strive to be the sacrificial neighbor you were created to be. Strive to be the sacrificial neighbor you were created to be. Desmond Doss was not beloved, he was beloved after he did this, not because he risked his life, not just that, because he sacrificed so much. Like I said, he was, for the first time, again, he did this for like the whole battle of Okinawa. For the first night, for the first 12 hours, he pulled an all-nighter to save people running around, crawling with heavy back, you know, with equipment on his back, crawling to find more guys. You and I struggle to pull an all-nighter with Red Bull and video games. We can barely do that. He, Desmond Doss, this guy, sacrificed 12 hours of his life. And not only that, he sacrificed his hands and his body. Well, what about his hands? Again, I told you, he had to lower each guy. And again, rope. If you ever load a rope, it hurts. It burns sometimes. So one after another after another, he's getting rope burn. And that rope burn is turning from blisters to like second degree burns, maybe a third degree burn. Now he's bleeding every single time. Not just one, not just two, not just 14 or 30, 75 different guys. He's wincing in pain, but he wants to be a good neighbor and save his brethren. So he does so. That's a that's, that's little, little bit. Let's go further. Two days later, he was a sacrificial neighbor in this. A grenade fall, fell in a foxhole with, with him and his buddies fell in. The Japanese were able to lob a grenade. So to save his friends, instead of just pushing that away, he, tried to, he tries to kick it, and it explodes. And thankfully, he doesn't lose his legs, but he gets, he gets wounded horribly in his legs because he wanted to sacrifice himself for his, for his friends, again, who probably hated him still. And not only that, he waited five hours to make sure the coast was clear so the medics can come get him. So being a medic himself, he's able to dress his own wounds. Instead of crying, medic! And they run to him. He's like, I'm going to wait for, the, for it to be calm enough. I'll sacrifice part, some of my time and my comfort to make sure that they're okay. And so when they came, they picked him up. We're on a stretcher, so they're running down back to the aid station. And he sees someone else more wounded than him. So what does he do? Naturally, but since he's a good neighbor, he rolls off the stretcher. He says, you know, you take him. Take him. He's more wounded. He needs more help. He sacrificed potentially his life so that some other person could be saved. So they ran him back to the aid station. So he thought, you know what? Instead of risking more lives, I'm just going to crawl back myself. You know, blood falling out of my legs. Legs broken. I'm just going to crawl back for 300 more yards. Well, in the process, he gets shot by a sniper and bone is shattered in his arm. That's why he's wearing that funny cast. And instead of, again, sacrificing the convenience of having a medic, he says, no, I'll still crawl back 300 yards. For a pacifist, this guy's crazy. He's probably tougher than any person I know. But again, he was respected for what he sacrificed. That's why he got the medal. That's why the men entrusted their lives to him. But the reason why he did it is because he, know, he knew how much he was forgiven by God. That's why he forgave the others. He didn't discriminate. He didn't show partiality. He helped his enemy. Even though he was being shot at by his enemy, he was still helping his enemy be saved. Why? Because he knew Christ. He 
you knew Christ's example, so he wanted to follow his example. And yes, we have some disagreements with his theology, and we'll get, we can talk about that after the sermon. But the point is that he took the page out of Christ's playbook, so we, so should we. So what are some of the pages of Christ's playbook? Page number one, we need, need to do good to everyone, including outside the church and especially those inside the church. Because again, we were created to do good. Ephesians 2.10, we were created to do good works. We're supposed to be known as do, uh, good doers, do-gooders. That's the phrase, do-gooders. Do-gooders don't go to heaven by themselves. Yes, they need Christ. But as our Christ, you should, be, you should be known for your good. Not just good to those in here, but to good, good to those out there. But as Galatians 6, 6, 9 through 10 says, Galatians 6, 9 through 10, we need to make sure, especially, we're good to those in this room. So the people in front of you, behind you, to your left and to your right, are you being good to them? What about your parents and siblings, your, your teachers and your fellow students, your bosses and coworkers? Are you doing good to them as well? The second page we need to take out of Christ's playbook is to be ready to love the people who you do not like. God says everyone, and he means it. And this is hard. I get it. There's people I don't naturally like. But Christ says we're supposed to love everyone, including our enemies, especially those who do evil against us. So when someone does evil against us, what do you do? You do not repay evil for evil, but rather if your enemy is thirsty, you give them something to, give them something to drink. When they're hungry, you give them something to eat. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. And Jesus takes it further. Love your enemies. Do good, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you, especially those bad drivers out there abuse us by cutting us off, not using their blinkers, just weaving in and out of traffic because they think they're NASCAR. No. Instead of them giving, giving them the bird, giving them the middle finger, instead of yelling in your car at them or wishing that you had a button of God's lightning just to be able to strike them down, no. As one, one of the leaders has suggested once, pray for them. Pray for their safety. Pray that they know the gospel. Pray for their safety so that they know the gospel. For those teachers that are bad. Those bad teachers, we know though. I've had bad teachers before. The teachers who give you one assignment and when it's the due date's the next day, they decide to change everything last second and expect you to have that fully completed. Yes, love them. Do the assignment without grumbling and with a joyful heart and say, you know what? Here's my best. I'm an obedient student and I love you. What about those bad bosses who don't give you the time off you want or don't give you enough hours that you want who run the business in your eyes poorly. What does Christ say? Love them. Be the best employee they've ever had because Christ has saved you. But how? How can we do that? Well, page book number three. Page number three of the playbook, excuse me. Look to Christ as your model. That's how Desmond did it. That's how we need to do it. Look to Christ as our model. He molded, molded it as in the Great Samaritan, in the, sorry, the Good Samaritan in the parable. He had compassion, so we need to have compassion. He bound his wounds, so we need to try to heal. We need to try to reconcile. He was sacrificial. He gave expensive oil, expensive wine to help heal this man. He gave his paychecks. He gave, he let his, the guy ride on his ride. He tried to pay the temporary needs that he needed to make sure he healed. So we need to meet the temporary needs of others in the hope that we can meet the eternal needs through the preaching of the gospel. We need to look to Christ as our influencer. 
because he's the only influencer that can change the heart. All the other influencers on Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, they might have 1,000, 10,000, 30,000, 300,000, or 30 million followers, but yet they cannot change anyone. One person can change them. Why not follow him and follow those who are after his example? But if we're looking to Christ as our model, this is page number four, be ready to sacrifice. The Samaritan was sacrificial. Jesus was sacrificial. We need to be sacrificial. We need to go do likewise. We need to be like that. We need to sacrifice. Sometimes we want the glory and we want to cut corners. I bet if the teacher, the hardest class you have in the final, I bet we would gladly take the answer sheet. So here, 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 I'm the teacher. Here's the answer sheet to the final. Here's the final. You have the answers. I bet we would do that because we want the A plus easily. We don't want to learn. We don't want to try to spend the hours and time to truly grasp what we're trying to learn. No, we want the easy way out. We want to run the, mar- we want to run the marathon, but instead of 26.2 miles, we'd just rather point, run 0.2 miles and get the medal as well. We want to be known as Christians. We want to be known as good Samaritans, as good neighbors, but we don't want to sacrifice. But Christ is showing we need to sacrifice 1 Timothy 6.18 talks about how God gives us so that we can be ready to share and be generous. Now he's talking about for rich and wealth, but I don't think any of you are millionaires yet, but you have talents. Some of you are really, really smart. If you're good at math and you see someone in your class or someone in here struggling with math, math, not math, sorry, with math, sacrifice some time, sacrifice a Monday night to come to help tutor them on tutoring. Because if we see the means, and we can provide the means, and we don't provide it, 1 John 3, 17 and 18, and James 2, 15, 17 says, if we have the means and don't help, it's because, it's because we don't love. And maybe the love of God is not in us. Because James furthers the point and says, faith without action, without action is dead faith. So if you keep seeing people and walking by, you see the needs and you have the needs, the means to meet the needs, you walk by, do we love? We need to have an attitude at any time, any place, anything attitude. Willing to spend the extra dollar, spend the extra minute, give the extra effort to make sure others around us are helped. So do we care about our neighbors, True North? Do we care about your neighbors on your campuses? How about we sacrifice some comfort? Maybe sacrifice the comfort of going home at lunch, but rather packing lunch, bringing your practice clothes, and staying on the campus to help your campus clubs. Not just to help your, your club presidents or the people in the, in the True North that are on your clubs, to help your neighbors know the gospel. Let's sacrifice a little comfort. How about this? How about the upperclassmen? Let's sacrifice a little, a little bit of our pride. Let's, let's befriend, befriend the sophomores and freshmen. Let's spend time with them. Let's get to know them. Let's not be prideful and exclude them. Rather, hey, you know what? Let's come pray with me. I want to get to know you. Let's spend time with you. And underclassmen, you have to lower your pride as well and be willing to be taught. Let's sacrifice. Let's love our neighbor like that. What about our small groups? Let's sacrifice for our small groups. Sacrifice time outside of small groups to get to know one another, to pray for each other, to help one another. What about in True North? How can we sacrifice our neighbors in True North? Well, instead of just walking in, maybe sitting in the back, just playing on your phone or just saying what's up to your squad and just hanging out with y'all, how about you look around real quick and see if, is anyone sitting alone right now? Who is new? And to sacrifice some of that fun time to say, you know what, squad? Let's go over and talk to this person. He, they're sitting by themselves. He or she, it doesn't matter. 
Let's sacrifice some fun time to see to make sure that everyone who's in here, maybe sitting alone for all of True North, or maybe the first time you're too scared to say, you know what, I, I want to lo- show that I love you and care for you by sacrificing some of my time. Because remember this, when we do this as Christians, King Jesus will say at the end, you did this to me. We're going to go, how? When he said, when you did this to the least of these, when you took care of people in the church, you did this to me. And he'll turn to those of us who haven't done it. And he said, truly, if for those who, ha- who see the needs and don't meet it, he said, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it from the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away to eternal punishment and the righteous in eternal life. Again, works don't save, but works do show where do we stand. It is hard to love those who are hard to love. It is hard to love those who love. I mean, Pastor Ron and Kristen Gomez right now, they're probably over the moon. They love baby Tabitha. They love her a ton. Perhaps, you know, but we know that you know, babies, if you know babies enough, they, they poop a lot. They scream a lot. They keep you up at night. You know, we see Bree Williams now. She's all grown up, but when she was a little baby, she, she pooped on Jess Williams. She kept Jess Williams up at night. She screamed at Jess Williams. They love baby Tabitha, but they know in order to be her neighbor, that Pastor Rod and Kristen, they know that they need to be a neighbor to baby Tabitha. But they know that they cannot do it on their own. They admit they are not the good neighbor that Christ was. And so they entrust their lives to baby Tabitha. And not just her, but all of their kids. All four of them, and probably soon all 40 of them. (laughs) But they know, Pastor Rod and Kristen know, that they cannot do it on their own. So they entrust their lives to the good neighbor who can. And through that, they can truly be a good neighbor to baby Tabitha. Because they know it, it cost Christ so much to be our good neighbor. And they know that they need to meet the temporary needs of baby Tabitha. To give her milk, to change her poopy diaper, to comfort her when she's screaming in the middle of the night for no reason. I wish they can communicate, but they, they don't. They just scream. I don't know that yet. I probably will eventually. Oh. But Pastor Rod and Christian, thankfully we have people who entrust their lives to Christ. So let's follow their example. Let's follow Christ's example. And let's, True North, let's be the sacrificial neighbors God created us to be. Let's be known as the high school ministry that loves our neighbor. That will meet the temporary needs of others, but also to meet the internal needs. To love the non-Christians enough to share the gospel to them. To love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. To encourage the gospel. To encourage them with the gospel. So let's be the sacrificial neighbors. Let's start today. Let's pray.